0: The economy is crumbling. They say it's had its day. The workers are all rumbling. Revolution's on the way. But I could never be a Marxist. It goes against the brain. And before you call me past it, give me a chance to explain. You see, come up to Paul Newell. He went with Danny Baker. So you, silly disco songs and reading Melody Baker. i see you down at Dunker. Playin Welcome to Radical, a podcast about the radical aspects of politics, music, and football. I'm your host, Kas Mudde. My guest today is Kasper Reykjavik. Kasper is an affiliated researcher at the Counter-Extremism Project and a Globsec Associate Fellow. Between 2016 and 2019, he led the latter's national security program and has published on a broad range of extremist and terrorism groups. Since 2014, he has been monitoring the topic of foreign fighters in Ukraine and earlier this year published a report titled Career Break or New Career? Extremist Foreign Fighters in Ukraine for the Counter-Extremism Project. That will also be the topic of this podcast. Welcome to the podcast, Kasper. Thank you, Kasper. Thank you for having me. So let's start with my standard introductory questions.
1: First, what was the first sports team you ever supported? There is only one team and it's called LKS Lodz or LKS Łódź. That's a Polish team, one of the founders of the Polish Football League. Twice the champions, unfortunately, this year relegated to the second tier of Polish football.
0: (laughs) Uh, But sometimes you need that to really test your love. To rejuvenate, yes, absolutely.
1: Okay, what is your favorite political song? The political song, uh, I think the year is 1983, and a bank band called Deserter, so it's a pretty self-explanatory name, records a song titled Ask the Militiamen, Militia in communist countries of Europe was basically the police force, and it took some guts to sing a song about that in 1983 Poland. <laughs> absolutely. And finally, what is your favorite book? The political book I would choose is because of my interest in terrorism and counterterrorism and insurgency and counterinsurgency. That would be Alastair Horn on, on the Savage War of Peace, basically the war in Algeria in the 1950s and the 1960s.
0: Uh, there's also a beautiful movie about that, The Battle for Algiers. Exactly. Today I want to talk in particular about foreign fighters. So, what are foreign fighters and are they the same as mercenaries?
1: I think the short answer is of course no and uh, without getting into too much detail I would say the main difference between the two is the money. Essentially mercenaries would go somewhere because they're getting paid whereas the foreign fighters would probably deploy to a certain war for a variety of different reasons. The things get a bit complicated when the foreign fighters get to a war and sometimes join some sort of a guerrilla or a legitimate force or an army and they actually end up getting paid. So the big question is who are they? Uh, are they still foreign fighters or? have do they morph into into mercenaries obviously you know that the big the big difference Supposedly, is the motivation. So, money or being a kind of like a dog of war versus something else. But, you know, two sides of the coin feel an adrenaline rush sometimes to, to, to deploy into, into a conflict. So, these two have this tendency to morph in a sense. And with the foreign fighters, they morphed into an industry after 2012, 2013, when there's so many of the foreign terrorist fighters deployed to Syria and, and Iraq, thousands of them, and there's been an immense interest in them. And now there's an immense interest in what happens after the war finished. Right. But at the same time, there were other foreign fighters, this time not terrorists who deployed to the conflict like the one that I'm looking at. So the one in Ukraine, I remember learning of this back in 2014 for the first time and on actually in a report on Russia Today, I remember falling off my chair when I saw these you know, French guys in the middle of Donetsk speaking into the camera that they've come here to fight. And you suddenly realize, hey, these are also foreign fighters, right. it's not only the jihadists.
0: So it's a big topic. Yeah. So let's remind our listeners. What is going on in Ukraine? Just a short summary of the conflict and where it stands today.
1: You partly answered this, you know, there's basically a war going on, although now it's in a ceasefire. There's a ceasefire situation, I think, holding for around a week. Essentially, if you were, you know, if one was to look at the press, it says that there is a Kiev government, which is in, in Ukraine, which is fighting the Russian-speaking regions that want to secede, therefore, they're being called the separatists. So essentially, it's seen as some kind of, by many people, it's seen as some kind of a civil war, whereas, you know, in reality, it's, it's not really that. We're have to go back to 2013 when Ukraine was trying to sign an association agreement with the European Union which was a remarkable step for this post-Soviet Republic and suddenly strange things started to happen and suddenly Russia found itself essentially annexing part of Ukrainian territory and then I would say exporting certain individuals with guns uh, to eastern regions of Ukraine so that they could ignite something that was meant to look and after a few years it might at times look like a popular rebel so essentially, six years later, we've got a frozen conflict, which is not so frozen, because there were people dying right before the ceasefire. And I think, you know, in the last few years, and you know it very well, because this term of hybrid war mm-hmm. became really popular. And many people in the last few years, especially after the events in the US and UK, they have, they associated it with the disinformation campaigns, and then, you know, the kind of uh, things that happen in social media, and stuff like that, whereas in reality, you basically have a hybrid conflict in Ukraine, where tanks and artillery are deployed. So it's a mix. It's tells you a lot when any negotiations are happening in relation to this conflict. And on one side, you've got the Ukrainian government. And on the other side, you don't have the separatists. You have the Moscow government in right. Russia. So that tells you a lot about what's going on there.
0: Right. And before we go to the foreign fighters, as you know yourself in your research, the vast majority of foreign fighters are Russians. You said earlier that at a certain point in time, Russia sent over some people. These were in the media sometimes called Putin's little green men. Who are they? You know,
1: there's there's a few categories, because the originally the, the, the little green men that deployed to Crimea, this is basically the Russian army dressed up slightly differently, with, with no insignia, pretending to be, you know, regular citizens dressed up in military uniforms, which, well, it didn't work really. Mm-hmm. That's one section. Then you've got another section, which is the individuals who, in early spring in 2014, they appear in certain eastern towns of Ukraine, and they basically start to foment rebellion. They are people who are sent over, not by the Russian state, that's an interesting Distinction here but essentially by some oligarchs who fantasize and have a stake in, in restoration of the glory of the Russian Empire and they see Ukraine as a, as a next great thing to attack and to go for after Georgia in 2008 and then the little green men are obviously the two waves that go into Ukraine later on in the war one is genuine foreign fighters you know volunteers who go because there's a you know we fight for Russian speaking people there we fight for the restoration of glory etc 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 and then and uh, again, we go back to the military. It's again the military that is being deployed there from the summer of 2014 onwards, that at times actually saves, inverted commas, the separatists from military oblivion. So we've got different categories, but you know we're looking in the direction of Moscow for sure.
0: So let's focus on the far-right fighters. In the media, both the international media, but definitely the Russian media, the far-right is often linked to the Ukrainian side, and most notably with the notorious Azov Regiment, which is now integrated into the Ukrainian gendarmerie. But far-right foreign fighters fight on both sides, right? Yes,
1: absolutely. I mean, you have nationalists on both sides. You have Ukrainian nationalists on one side, you've got Russian nationalists on the other, and just to confuse matters completely, you also have Russian nationalists fighting for Ukraine in this war, and I'll get to that. And yes, Azov and some other Ukrainian formations like the right sector, they do attract a certain number of extreme right-wing individuals into, into the ranks. Not as many as many thought. I think the issue, the bigger issue here is the fact that these units, they display certain narratives, certain propaganda, insignia, etc which is basically reminiscent of some of the things from the 1930s and the 1940s and some of the very troubled Ukrainian past. And that is something that really gets people, you know, notice them. But it's not so many guys in the ranks. This isn't essentially some kind of a neo-Nazi legions established in support of Ukraine. Simultaneously, on the other side, which is a a bizarre process, really, because the other side tries to recruit people, you know, venturing out to both sides of the ideological debate. So it reaches for the far left saying that this is basically an attempt to recreate a Soviet republic Donetsk and Luhansk people's republics mm-hmm. therefore if you are a true far leftist you have to flock to us and this is what they do especially in the Latin American countries and southern uh, European countries they, they reach out for this but at the same time they're obviously saying hey we're nationalists we're fighting for new countries we're fighting against Ukrainian aggression therefore come and join us and since this is a very transnational phenomenon they do attract some westerners as well but you know in the majority you've got a huge section of russians who go and join the pro-separatist side if i could put it this way who are often coming from the far right milieu in russia right. and you've got units like that which i think is a forgotten story and people don't like to remember that given the fact that you've got all these nasty symbols with azov there is a kind of like a tendency to really discount that and even you know at the last point There is a group of Russians and a quite big group of Russians who actually escape from Russia before the war because they feel oppressed by the Putin regime. And they go to Ukraine as the next best thing for them. And they fight in the ranks, for example, of Azov, which has like between 100 and 200, you know, Russian fighters in its ranks who are fighting Putin regime because they feel wronged by this very regime. You know, they're saying it's all fake. And we're really fighting here for the true Slavic brotherhood. So just to make it more complicated for, for our listeners. And just to be
0: clear to the listeners, we're talking here about Russian from Russia rather than Russian-speaking
1: Ukrainians, right? Exactly, yes. Genuine, you know, Moscow, St. Petersburg, and places like that where essentially camps and like, uh, let's say, recruitment centers are being established. And, you know, there are stories that, for example, certain Russian nationalists who are in jail or about to go to jail are given a kind of an offer saying, well, you have to go to fight for those separatists and all your sins will be forgiven. Mm -hmm. If you don't, well, you're going to end up in in jail. So there's this bizarre game being played out there in Moscow and St. Petersburg.
0: How many far-right foreign fighters are we talking about? And from... which far-right organizations do they come?
1: We estimated with a colleague that there's 17,000 people who flocked to this conflict who are not Ukrainians or not citizens or inhabitants of Ukraine, just to be more specific. Mm -hmm. But out of these, we estimated that around 15,000 are actually Russians. Uh And the other 2,000 are non-Russians. But of these 2,000, half are citizens of former Soviet Union countries, for example, Mm -hmm. Belarusians or Georgians. And now you get to the last bit, which is 1,000 of, let's call them Westerners. You know, in this case, I would say Westerners, so guys coming from places to the west of Ukraine. Out of these, I would assume up somewhere between 60-80%, so six to 800 are actually people with this kind of nationalist links. They're not always the extreme right-wing, the most extreme, but in some cases, yes. And they come from all sorts of, you know, name uh, any part of a militant scene in any Western European country, uh, any organization that is a part of this militant scene, and you probably will find a member. To give you examples from France, Parti de la France, for example, mm-hmm. attempts to recruit people in, from the UK from the National Act- action into the ranks, not so very much successful. Name any far-right organization in Germany starting from NPD or the Third Way. Yes, they're there or they're being kind of lured into the conflict. You've got individual representatives from almost anything and any network or any group. What you don't have, apart from a few nations, you don't have this kind of mass migration that, for example, you know, 50 go or 100 go from a given country. It's really individual guys and a few of their friends at times. Slightly different in the French and Swedish case, which are probably the two biggest Western mobilizations. One is for the separatist side, the French, and one the Swedish is for the Ukrainian side. What explains
0: which side they join? Why do the French join, the Russians and the Swedes join, the Ukrainians? Is that an ideological Mm -hmm. issue or are there
1: personal or organizational ties? It's the end result of the ties that have been going on for years. In case of the French militants who went there, it's basically they're coming from organizations like the Young Nationalists, uh, again, the Third Way, uh, War groups like that, that have been positively looking in the direction of Russia for years now they've been slightly anti-soviet anti-communist but at some point they, they, they moved towards Russia as this kind of the alternative world power to the US mm-hmm. so in a sense and some of them that I spoke today they said to me look this is a logical decision because we think us is really corrupting my country in this case France so we are gonna go and join the pro-russian side of this that apart that's a kind of you know inverted commas again logical decision and then on the back of those long-standing links that have been in play for years in case of the Swedes well you know the the Swedish nationalist scene, it changed the bit in the last few years, but it used to be very anti-Russian. And some of them actually go there and deploy there saying, look, we go there to stop them there so that they don't come here. Which is only even more interesting when the Nordic resistance movement, which is now the leading player on the extreme right wing scene in, the, in the Scandinavia and in Sweden in particular, you know, makes this U-turn and suddenly actually becomes chummy with Russia. So these things, you know, they're they're in a flux quite often, but these motivations are sometimes derived from the kind of like, you know, long ongoing processes, but these processes have an interesting tendency, as you know yourself, change at the stroke of a bell.
0: And are these foreign fighters, are they very different from other far-right activists in Western Europe? Are they more ideological? Are they more violent? Or are they roughly the same and is it almost random who goes and who doesn't go?
1: It's not random because because the ones who deploy are the ones who have this interest in this kind of military issues, military mindset. I'm going to go and test myself. You know, I'm going to see if I can do this, if I can actually fight, if I can stand my ground. So, you know, it takes a very specific person. That's one of the reasons why relatively few in total went, although, you know, if we speak about a few hundred, that I think is a sizable contingent and a a worry for certain Western European countries, and not only Western European. So, that's the difference. In terms of like them being similar, they are in a sense that, you know, Ideological underpinnings are very similar to the underpinnings of their colleagues from the broader scenes, militant or less militant radical right scenes. They, they speak very similar things. They like and dislike similar political issues and certain things that are happening in the world. And in a sense, you know, at times they really do sound as if they were basically supporters of a radical right party. But then obviously, if you probe a bit more and if you dig a bit deeper, then you see the kind of unreformed voters of a radical party that they vote for this party because they say, OK, I have nothing else on the political market, but at the same time, you know, there are issues there, as many are anti-Semitic, they are vehemently anti-Muslim in the main, you know, they're not so different from the from their comrades in the bigger organizations.
0: And so there are two groups that you could compare them to. I mean, first of all, of course, the foreign fighters that we normally talk about, which are West Europeans who fight in Syria, mostly with ISIS, or at least against Assad. So what are some of the most important similarities and differences between the foreign fighters in Ukraine and in Syria, leaving aside ethnicity
1: and religion that's a very interesting point because you know we are bound to find some similarities and some people might be shocked with this but both sets of these fighters are apocalyptic so isis obviously saying that there's going to be the end of the world and they have to make a stand and uh, you know things will get better for them Mm -hmm. whereas those fighters who went to ukraine they say that the world is about to fall this illusion of the post-1945 liberal dominated world order is just an illusion and there's going to be some massive changes and you have to prepare for these. Mm -hmm. Both sets of fighters are internationalists. Maybe the ISIS ones are globalists in the sense that they're interested in the whole globe. The far-right ones are interested or the extreme right are interested in parts of the whole globe, especially, you know, the Western, let's say, European world, if I could put it this way. Mm -hmm. Both sets of people, both sets of fighters venture outside what I would call the core European area. They look for things that are happening on the fringes. In the case of the ISIS ones, it's Syria, Libya, places like that, Iraq. In the case of the fighters from the extreme right wing, you know, it's Ukraine now, but 25 years ago it used to be the conflict in Yugoslavia right. so you go to a place which borders the kind of core Europe in their understanding then prepare yourself for something that might be of use Or you know might come in the future, and you have to be ready for some great geopolitical and not only geopolitical, but also social changes. There is an interesting dynamic here that ISIS fighters they love the fact that the state pushes them. You know the Western states push them, surveil them, oppress them. In inverted commas, that they get arrested, that they are followed, because that gives them this this martyrdom narrative that they then espouse. Whereas the fighters that I spoke to from the extreme right wing, and I spoke to around 20 of these, they actually detest this. You know they're they're moving on this libertarian direction when they say basically we're not the fascists, it's the state that it's fascist it's observing me, it's pushing me it's making my life difficult and it should be really different they really detest this unlike the jihadists i would say right and probably the last point you know the extreme right-wing guys they don't really believe that terrorism in europe will be of use they say, we're too weak. It's not going to get us anywhere. That's why we go somewhere else and we hope for better times. We train for better times. We get ready for better times. But we know that, you know, staging terrorist attacks in Europe, it's not really the thing that's going to get us anywhere. Whereas the Jihad is obviously, as we saw in the last few years, you know, for them, a good strike somewhere in Europe, a good attack is worth millions, if not billions. And they are ready even against massive odds right. to perpetrate those attacks. So,
0: does that mean that these foreign fighters, when they return, they are not a danger?
1: You know, it's a complicated answer. The main worry is not that they went and they're coming back. They flip it, in a way, Cass. The problem is that these guys had known one another from before the war. They didn't need a war to get to know each other. You know, I saw videos when they actually, you know, greet one another across the front lines. When they name drop certain guys from the other side. They met, you know, at certain conferences, at demonstrations, at, at festivals, whatever. And there had been a network. I would say the main issue is that I think we neglected this in a sense that these guys had been there, they had been you know preparing plotting meeting training etc 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 and there is this kind of you know ugly militant extreme right-wing underbelly from which from time to time you might get terrorists or, or whatever that's why I think people are trying to recuperate the situation and then make up for this by actually saying that you know it's no longer the jihadists who are actually so much of a danger it's now the extreme right-wing terrorism you know it's a fair statement but for someone who has been looking at this for a few years and I'm still relatively new to this because I've been looking at this for like six years and I know people People who are looking at this for ages, you've been looking at the far right for years. It's a kind of like a belated sense of understanding this, and I think we've just simply laid to the game. And some of them were telling me that there is a, a kind of like a European foreign fighter society. They will deploy to different wars. You know, that's why some of them tried to go to Iraqi Kurdistan. That's why some of them tried their hands at, as private military contractors in, in places like, I don't know, Libya, Syria, Somalia, places like that. And I think for any state, it's a concern. It might not be subversive or not yet, but it completely escapes our attention and i would worry about that and i would want to know more
0: and there's another aspect to that because as you say they're like clandestine they're kind of part of the underbelly which means that they tend to mix with other people who are there including organized crime are there links between organized crime and far-right foreign
1: fighters I would say some of them, some of the guys who went there, some of those fighters, they definitely come from from the background of having run-ins with the law. I wouldn't say they were huge criminal kingpins, because if they had been, then they probably wouldn't go deploy in a foreign war, They, they would stay at home and make money. Obviously, you know, I alluded to this while talking about the Russian side, that essentially you had a huge chunk of guys who would be in jail had they not gone to fight in the war. So you've got this side of the thing, which is on the separatist side, the Russians. Some of the Russians who fight on the Ukrainian side are also coming from that kind of Past. but I know of individuals who are coming from places like Norway, France, actually Slovakia, where I'm based, who who were actually escaping from justice. Or when they come back, the justice gets back at them. They simply skipped something that they were supposed to serve and things like that. And then you have really bizarre incidents of, of uh, criminal actions while in Donetsk, especially on the separatist side, when these fighters would finance themselves, for example, through health sourcing campaigns. They you know they were soliciting donations, and you know they would be stealing those donations. From one another and you know there was a bit of embezzlement here and there so you had this bizarre unsteady mix of people in unsteady roles coming from in this sense also unsteady backgrounds and a lot of rivalry and some of them being trigger happy and it's a pity that we know so little about that. So I think it's a pity that we miss quite a lot of the stuff that was happening when they were deployed to the front lines in Eastern Ukraine on either side. This is where quite often they made interesting connections. What happens is, and I think that's an interesting one, that there is basically fight for some resources coming out of those inverted comma separatist republics. Like there is a type of coal that is very much valued in different parts of the world and the place where you can find it are actually located in the separatist territory. Now there is some interesting business to be had by, on one hand, the Ukrainians, on the other hand, some Ukrainians, on the other hand, the separatists. And obviously, the foreign fighters sometimes find themselves in the middle. These are connections that go back to the front line, to the countries in which this action is happening. It doesn't so much go back to their pre-lives, or not so much to the afterlives.
0: So finally, what is the most important misperception about the role of far-right foreign
1: fighters in Ukraine? I would give you three quick ones. So first, I already alluded to some people were saying there were legions or brigades of these fighters on one or the other side, especially Ukraine gets the blame for this. That's not the case. Then the second myth is that they really did change a lot as far as this conflict is concerned. And yes, the Russian ones, of course, because there were so many of them, and at times they saved uh, those inverted commas separatist republics, but the ones on the Ukrainian side, not so much. One of them told me that, look, I was in every battle, but we didn't really make a difference. So that is something that worth, worth remembering. And I think, you know, the final point is that they're not all extreme right-wing guys. You know, there were people from extreme left fighting in this war. There were people coming from really bizarre backgrounds and for bizarre reasons. This isn't a homogenous bunch at the end of the day. Okay, thank you so
0: much for coming on the show, Kasper. Thank you, Kaspar. If you want to know more about Kaspar Rekavec, you can follow him on Twitter at, at Kaspar Rekovek, Kasper with a C, and his working paper, Career Break or New Career, Extremist Foreign Fighters in Ukraine, which was written for the Counter-Extremism Project, can be downloaded for free online. If you liked this episode, please rate and subscribe to Radical on your podcast platform of choice. Till the next time. The economy is crumbling, they say it's had its day. The workers are all rumbling, revolution's on the way, but I could never be a Marxist. It goes against the grain, and before you call me past it, give me a chance to explain. You see, come up to Paul Newell, he went with Danny Baker. See you silly disco songs of to d Melody Baker, I see it down at Dunker. No with his Not one, though, the capital turned out a little weird.